Advent, it raises the question, what exactly are we celebrating? What is the good news of the resurrection? And uh, why is it that one day a year we gather together in order to worship the Lord and remember what happened 2,000 years ago, but more importantly, what's happening right here and right now in our midst. Well, as we consider the life of the man who wrote that verse that the children said this morning, the Apostle Paul, we see a life that is really transformed. We see a life in the face of imprisonment, in the face of incarceration, in the face of chains, in the face of torture, who is still joyful. He is still resilient, even more so. He is a man who is filled with the peace of God. And he ties it together for us and says there's a reason this is the case. It's because Jesus is not dead. He's alive. And around 55 A.D., while he was ministering in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul spelled this out in a letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. This is the passage or the section from which the children's scripture verse was taken. And he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel or good news I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. As we think about the Apostle Paul and what was so important to him, we just see there was something of first importance to him. And it begs the question, what is of first importance to you this Sunday morning? What is of first importance in your life? Well, what set Paul apart is that what was of first importance to him is the good news of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. That's what he just said. It's the good news of the authoritative and infallible and inerrant Word of God. That some 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified as the Christ by Pontius Pilate. And he died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And he was then buried in a local tomb in Jerusalem according to the customs of first century Jews. But then on the third day, after his death, he rose. 
or rather, he was raised from the dead by God in accordance with the Scriptures. And this same Jesus, who was resurrected, then appeared not as a ghost or an illusion, but as a real person, first to his disciples, then to more than 500 brothers at one time, and then to his half-brother James, and finally to the Apostle Paul, who, at the time that Jesus appeared to him, he believed that this was all a lie, and he was actively persecuting and incarcerating Christians and the disciples of Christ. Now, to the world, then and now, this testimony of the resurrected Jesus Christ is not good news. It is absolute madness and craziness. For the ancient world and for the Greeks and Romans and those in first century Palestine, there was always a belief in an afterlife. That's why there were pyramids. That's why Chinese emperors built statues of Chinese warriors and put them in their tombs. There was always a common belief that after we die, your spirit or your soul migrates or goes somewhere else. But not resurrection. Not this truth of being raised from death to return to a completely new bodily life on earth. Greek scholar Albrecht Dopke writes, quote, Greeks spoke of this, meaning the resurrection, only as an impossibility. So this wasn't a common belief in the old world, and we haven't evolved, and we still have those same thoughts today. If you ask anybody what's going to happen to them after they die, most people will say, my soul or my spirit, or I'm going to go to heaven, or I'm going to be with God because I didn't murder people, and I wasn't unkind, and I did more good than bad. But this idea of coming back to life, of being raised to an entirely new bodily life here on earth, then and now, the world has always been a place that believes this is absolute Looney Tunes. Why? Because it is contrary to everything in this world. Everything in this world goes from life to death, not the other way around. For those of you who are science nerds, you know this. This is the second law of thermodynamics. In an isolated system, things inevitably go from a place of order to disorder. Things go into uncertainty and chaos. Things fall apart, and this is what we witness on a day-to-day -day basis. Especially those of us, like myself, who are getting older, everything falls apart. Resurrection, brothers and sisters, is the complete opposite of that. It is a divine work of God that out of darkness and death, beauty, goodness, love, kindness, life can be brought. And this, brothers and sisters, is exactly why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just good news, 
It's what this world, this sinful world that is falling apart, so desperately needs. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is through the light of the Apostle John's account of the resurrection, I'd like to highlight for us three truths of why the resurrection is not just good news, but it's necessary for each and every one of us. And the first truth I want to draw your attention to is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ brings God's peace and joy to a world of sin and death. The resurrection of Jesus Christ brings God's peace and joy to a world of sin and death. Now, if you have your Bibles, would you turn again with me to John chapter 20, and we'll read from verse 19 to 31. And this is the Apostle John's eyewitness account, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, of the disciples' first encounter with Jesus after he had been crucified and buried. John 20, 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it has been withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark on your side and place my hand, excuse me, into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. After Jesus was crucified, I think it's fair to say that the disciples of Jesus were under no illusion that the world is a good place and everything ends well. There was no illusion that everyone deep down inside, no matter what we say or do, is a good person. They had just witnessed firsthand the heart and the horror of this fallen world in which we live, a world that is determined to crush and to conquer anyone or anything that stands in our way. Be it American school children at Christian schools or the Holy Son of God 
They had just witnessed the man that they had left everything for and believed to be the Messiah, wrongly condemned with false charges, and then brutally tortured, disfigured, and murdered. And if you just think for a moment of many of the things that we've seen and the violence we've seen in America, and we think of the time that it takes for people to even to begin to process those things. And we think, what would it be like for someone to have gone through that? And you show up to them and says, the world's a good place and everybody's a good person deep down inside. The disciples had seen the ugliness of the world up close and very, very personal. And in fact, as we come to where this text opens, John points out they are fearing that the same fate awaits them because of their association with Jesus of Nazareth. And so three days after his crucifixion, on the evening of the first day of the week, the disciples are now hiding behind locked doors, as John says in verse 19, for fear of the Jews. And that's a reference in John's gospel to the religious and political leaders in Jerusalem who had brought Jesus to Pilate to be crucified. And so we see the disciples here are in a very dark place, inconsolable, despairing, and afraid, and for good reason. And without Jesus, the disciples were literally a people dwelling in darkness and in the shadow of death. And I would put before you, brothers and sisters, that we too are people who are dwelling in darkness as we look at this world and in the shadow of death. And we think somehow that these things will not happen to us, perhaps because we are believers or Christians, that the wickedness of the world will stay at our doors as long as we lock them and find some way, whether it be money, education, or whatever, to create a barrier between us and the ugliness of the world out there. And sometimes what we fail to see is that the ugliness and darkness is in our own hearts. But as we come to verse 19b, the second half, the Apostle John shows us what abruptly turns the darkness of the disciples into light. He writes, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And what is, what is it here that changes everything? It's not the memory of Jesus. It's not the thought of Jesus. It's not a group of people getting together and say, let's have a memorial and remember all the good times we had with Jesus. That, brothers and sisters, does not change anything. It is the living presence and the return of their crucified Lord personally coming through locked doors, personally standing among them in their darkness, and personally speaking the light of God's word into their lives. Peace be with you. And he says it not once, but as you go through the following verses, he says it three times. Brothers and sisters, what do we need in a world of darkness? We need light personally to come into our lives. We need the presence of light in our lives. We need light to be spoken into our lives. We need light to come in and stand among us 
in a world that is just filled with darkness. And these words that Jesus speaks, peace be with you, are more than just a first century greeting. They are a divine declaration and a gift. The peace Jesus is referring to is God's gift of a life and a relationship that God has taken care of. It's a life and a relationship that God has made right. This is the idea of peace in the Old Testament and shalom and in the New Testament, that we live in this broken world filled with things that are indeed fearful and worrisome. But when God comes in and he makes right our relationship with him and he takes what's broken and he puts it back together again, Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the opposition, there is no need for worry or fear. Why? Because God is with us. And that's Psalm 16 that you read this morning. And each time Jesus says these words to his disciples in verse 19, 21, and 26... Immediately before or after he says these words, he shows them his hands and his side. Proof of his crucifixion and death on the cross. The place where the nails pierced his arms and his legs in order to keep him on the cross. But then when he was certified dead by a Roman soldier, the place in his side close to the pericardium where a spear was inserted and water and blood ran out, affirming that he was indeed dead and he could be taken down from the cross. But more than just showing his disciples that he is no ghost and he is not an illusion, he's not a figment of wishful thinking. More than just showing that he is indeed the same person. Oh, you didn't just see someone who looked like Jesus. This is indeed the person who they witnessed up close being crucified and killed three days before. More than that, Jesus is showing his disciples that now in him, God has made everything that was wrong, the injustice, the abuse, the torture, the murder, the religious authorities who are supposed to stand for truth, but instead stand for selfish ambition. In Christ, God has made everything that was wrong with this world right. Injustice, abuse, selfish ambition, and murder, these are no longer the end of the story. And sin and death, what separates us all from God and from those we love, no longer separates the disciples from Jesus, and nor does it separate them from God their Father. In Jesus' resurrection, not only has God triumphed over sin and death and the injustice and evil of men, in Christ God has also visibly reverse the curse, redeeming and making right everything this fallen world has made wrong. And that includes the sorrow and the suffering of the cross. How many of us, when we see scars, how often does that bring back good memories? In the physician's office on occasion, you'd see people who come in 
and you'd see all the marks, whether it be of gunshot, stabbings, gunshot wounds, or major surgeries that had happened. And you see the lasting effects in their life of terrible things that have happened to them. And yet here, as Jesus shows, the scars and the wounds of what had taken place days before and the story behind it, we see that the disciples' reaction is not one of bad news, but of good news. Now, without doubt, these are truths that the disciples did not fully grasp at the time. And you see through the epistles and the entirety of the New Testament that they started to put things together by virtue of the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. And in fact, the entire New Testament, as you read through, is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You take away the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you do not have a New Testament. Jesus is just a criminal who's been crucified. But John writes in verse 20 what the reaction of the disciples is. It says, Then, or therefore, the disciples were glad, and they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. That begs the question of us, brothers and sisters, what is the true joy of the Christian life? Now, I know there's plenty of high chews left at the back there for anybody who wants them. And certainly, I don't want to diminish the sweetness of chocolate, bunny rabbits, and eggs. I'm a big fan. You want to give them to me, I'm open. And they have their place. But we understand, brothers and sisters, that the true joy of the Christian life is that in Christ, sin and death and sorrow and suffering are not the end of the story. It is not the final word. That in fact, in Christ, God has provided us with a new beginning and a new life that is free from sin, that is forgiven of sin, that is reconciled with God, where God has begun first in Christ, but then in his people to make the things that are wrong right. And that begins with us, brothers and sisters, in our hearts. And this brings us to our second point this morning. The resurrection of Jesus Christ fulfills God's promise of a new beginning in life in Christ. Why is the resurrection good news? Because it demonstrates and it brings into our lives the new beginning and new life that God has always promised. But he promised it in one place alone, in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In Matthew 1.21, an angel of the Lord speaks to Joseph, the son of David, about Mary's unborn child, what we celebrate at Christmas. And he says to Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And these words that the angel speaks to Joseph are essentially a summation of all of God's promises throughout the Old Testament. That in love he would provide a remedy and salvation for what is defiling and destroying us and our world. A remedy and salvation for our sin, but not just our sin, brothers and sisters, our sinfulness. And this promised remedy and salvation, as you walk through the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, would be a new king, a Messiah, 
who would save God's people from their sins. And it was not until after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples begin to see that this is what the cross was all about. On the cross, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit and in obedience to God the Father and in fulfillment of all of God's promises, gave his sinless life as a sacrifice, a substitute, a payment for sin, the Lamb of God, so that God's people might be forgiven so that God's people might be made right with God, so that God's people might have a new life of holiness and not sin, of forgiveness, not hate, of peace with God and one another, and not conflict and war and bitterness and malice. And this, brothers and sisters, is the promise and good news of God's salvation. Jesus Christ came to accomplish and to offer to all men new life and a new beginning. And this is the new life and beginning, the crucified and risen Jesus, what has not happened before. When men die, they disappear. And this is the new life and new beginning that is proclaimed to Jesus' disciples as he says to them a second time in verse 21, "'Peace be with you.'" But then he adds, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, or if you have forgiven the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. Now much has been written on this and much should be said about these words. But for this morning, suffice it to say, Jesus is showing his disciples that in his death and resurrection... God has kept his promise. This is the good news of the gospel and the resurrection, brothers and sisters. The God who created the universe is a God who is faithful and true, and he always keeps his promises in his time and in his way. God has kept his promise of a new beginning and a new life in Christ, first through his resurrection, but then through the proclamation of his gospel through lives that are transformed by the gospel. Through lives that are transformed through the gift of God's peace, through the gift of forgiveness, and through the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is what Christ is sending his disciples out to bear witness to and to call others to be a part of. A new life of forgiveness, a new life of peace with God, a new life walking in the Spirit of God. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world where everyone is looking for something new. New shoes, new clothes, new friends, new phones, new genders, new spouses, And the list goes on and on. We have to ask ourselves in that search for everything that is new. How often are we simply searching for something new to cover up what we can't change? The same old sinful hearts, the same old sinful lives, the same old sinful relationships with God, 
the same old sinful relationships with one another. And what we really need, only God can give. Forgiveness of sin, a new heart, a new spirit, a new relationship with God, a new relationship with one another, a new Lord, and a new God. Someone instead of us running the show. And this brings us to our final truth for this morning of why the resurrection is good news. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is good news, brothers and sisters, because it affirms that Jesus is Lord and God of all, not you and not me. In a world that is filled with sinful men running other sinful men into the ground. Praise God, there is a good and holy and living Savior who is both Lord and God. The only question is, is he your Lord and is he your God? As we come to verse 24, John explains to us on that first day of the week, one disciple was not with them. Thomas, also known as the twin, he is somewhere else. And so, not surprisingly, the disciples tell Thomas immediately, we have seen the Lord. And in the original language, the verb tense there that's used is that they are telling him repeatedly. They are so excited about this, they're telling Thomas over and over and over again, we have seen the Lord, we've seen the Lord, we've seen the Lord. And what is Thomas' response to this good news? Well, in verse 25, he says to the disciples, his friends with whom he has walked for three years, with whom he has left everything to follow Jesus as the Messiah. He says to them in verse 25, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never, no possibility, believe. And once again, there's so much that can and should be said about Thomas' words and his confession of unbelief. But suffice it to say for this morning, Thomas is still in the same dark place the rest of the disciples were prior to their very personal encounter with the crucified and risen Lord. And the implication of John's account is that not only does Thomas' dark and hard and unbelieving heart persist, but it goes on for a full week with no end in sight. The other implication here is that there is nothing the other disciples can say or do to convince Thomas to believe. Brothers and sisters, the good news of the resurrection is that we are unable to bring someone else to belief, but Christ can do what we cannot do. And what's needed, because when we talk about belief, we're not talking about a figment of our imagination. We're not talking here, and John's not talking about someone selling a product where they're convincing you that this is a good decision for your investment or this is going to turn out well for you. In Scripture, there are only two types of belief, and there are only two types of faith. There is true belief, a belief in something that's true and false belief. There is true faith and there is false faith. And what distinguishes the, true, the two is what you place your faith in. 
Are you believing in something that is true? Is your faith in something that is true? Is your conviction and your confidence in something that's true? Or is your faith and conviction in something that is false? But such is the blindness of the human heart. Here is this disciple who's seen all these miracles. Here is this disciple who's been with these men for three years and has bonded and been through everything. There is nothing they can do or say to give Thomas a heart of faith in what is true. But eight days later, on the following Sunday, the first day of the week, the disciples are back behind locked doors. And that, of course, raises the question, how much are doubts and fears starting to creep back into their hearts? The only difference this Sunday is that Thomas is with them. And yet in mercy and grace, perhaps not only for the one stray sheep, but also for the rest, Jesus comes again. And brothers and sisters, how many encounters with our Lord and Savior do we need? Well, quite frankly, we need it over and over and over and over again. And that, brothers and sisters, is the good news of the resurrection, that Jesus is indeed alive and that he does come and stand among his people and he is present through his spirit and his word, the gospel. Because our need, brothers and sisters, is not for belief for a minute or a moment, but every minute and every moment for the entirety of our lives. And this is exactly what Jesus does for his disciples. And this is exactly what he does for Thomas. And he comes to them and he says the exact same word, peace be with you. And then he personally addresses Thomas and he does so with a command. And it reveals that even though Thomas has not seen Jesus after the cross, with this command that Jesus gives, Jesus shows he has seen Thomas he knows exactly what Thomas has said, and he knows exactly what is tormenting Thomas's heart. And in mercy and grace, Jesus addresses every word and every thought of Thomas's heart. Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, or literally, do not be disbelieving, but be believing. What's Jesus doing here? Our focus so often is on the evidence and him commanding Thomas to do the very thing that Thomas required. And what we fail to see frequently is Jesus is setting the terms on the relationship. He's being gracious and he's showing Thomas what Thomas has requested and how often is Christ gracious to us in so many different ways, giving what we ask and yet what Jesus is doing is he's making the terms of this relationship. He's calling and commanding Thomas to repent, to turn from disbelief and confidence in his own eyes and his ability to touch, in his own understanding and in his own control of the situation. And this is how we control. Unless A, B, or C, D and happens, I'm not going to do it. It's worth noticing Thomas's response. Thomas doesn't say, you are Lord and God, which is not only true, but the only rational explanation for Jesus being present. 
It's the only rational explanation for Jesus fulfilling all of God's promises. It's the only rational explanation of Jesus' return from death to life, and it's the only rational explanation for Jesus demonstrating his omnipresence and his knowledge of every word and thought in Thomas's heart. And yet, that's not the point, is it? Thomas says, my Lord... And my God, or literally, the Lord of me and the God of me. The Lord of me and the God of me. And it begs the question, who is your Lord and who is the Lord of your life? Who is God of your life? Well, up until this point, Thomas had gotten to the point, well, it's me. Based on what I see, based on what I feel, based on what I do, based on what I think, I'm in charge here and I get the last vote and I get the last say. And the beauty and goodness of the resurrection is as Christ comes and meets us where we are at, what we really don't deserve. His point is not just to meet us where we're at, brothers and sisters. His point is to bring us to where he is. And this is exactly the place that he brings Thomas. And when Thomas says, my Lord, my God, the Lord of me and the God of me, this is a personal confession of submission and surrender to Jesus as his Lord and God. It is an act of repentance and it is an act of of turning from the sin of unbelief and rejection of God's word, God's promises, the cross, the testimony of the other disciples, and ultimately, the entire testimony of Christ before he died, it is a turning from that sin of unbelief, which is the heart of the very sin that breaks our relationship with God. And instead... Believing what is true and not false. And placing his faith in the resurrected Jesus, the crucified and risen Lord, as his Lord and his God. Being faithful. Believing. And for Thomas, this is the beginning of a new life and a new beginning completely different from his life before the cross. And so we see in verse 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then John goes on to say in verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Brothers and sisters, why is the resurrection such good news? Why for Paul was it the truth of first importance that Jesus was crucified according to the scriptures, that he died according to the scriptures and was buried, and that on the third day he rose again and was raised by God in accordance with the scriptures? Why was this everything to the Apostle Paul? Well, not least is that it is true. 
But more importantly, as he goes on to say, this is the good news by which we are being saved. Saved from our sin, saved from our sinfulness, saved from this sinful and dark fallen world. Does it mean that we won't suffer or experience sorrow? No, it doesn't. And certainly Paul had his fair share of suffering and sorrow. But what he goes on to point out as he writes in 2 Corinthians, and he shows them, he says, even though this outer body is wasting away, even though it's falling apart, even though the external is dying, and we will all die, each one of us, and we will all stand before the Lord in judgment. Because Christ lives, because the power over sin and death is brought near, because he is greater than all the ugliness and darkness of this world, and because he is able to save and he is saving, as Paul points out, we are being renewed minute by minute, moment by moment, day by day, from the inside out. And though one day we will die, one day we will be raised again, either to life with Christ or to eternal condemnation. And so we see in the life of the Apostle Paul a new life and a new beginning and the testimony of his life, even in that testimony as we talked about with Charles Wesley. Lives of men that are filled with forgiveness. Lives of men that are completely new. Lives of men that are filled with love and not hate. Lives that are walking by the Spirit of God and not the Spirit of this world. Lives that have begun and will go on for eternity. Why? Because the Christ who is alive is the Christ who is in them. And greater is he who is in us than all this garbage that is in the world. And all that's left, brothers and sisters, because it is true, is he the Lord of us or is he the God of us or not? Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, you are the risen Lord and your presence in our lives is such good news. Though we are dying each day on the outside through your spirit and through your word, through the good news of the gospel, through faith in what is true, Lord Jesus, you have made us completely new and given us a new life, a new beginning. Lord, we pray that the world and so many who are dying in their sins, this day as they have seen you and heard you through your word, that they, like Thomas, will be brought to repentance and faith in you. And they would know you, not as a tradition, not as a thought or a memory, but that they would come to know you as their Lord and their God. In your name we pray, amen.